Hi everyone, this is Christopher Brick, and welcome back to Intervals, a public humanities podcasting initiative of the Organization of American Historians. Today, we're joined once more by A.J. Cade II, a military historian with the U.S. Army Center for Military History, and also currently a Ph.D. candidate in history at George Washington University. If you listened to the lecture that A.J. contributed for Episode 3, of this season, then you already know that his dissertation research focuses on the Louisiana Native Guards, who were the first black regiments constituted in the Union Army during the Civil War. AJ is also the author of a number of articles on this topic and that use the discipline of military history to explore the Civil War era experiences of immigrants and African Americans. He talked about all of that and a lot more with Carrie Ann Yokota and I. Please enjoy. AJ Cade, welcome to the podcast. All right, thank you. AJ is joining us from the U.S. Army Center for Military History, and he's also a PhD candidate at George Washington University. I'm also joined by my remarkable colleague, co-host, co-pilot, and constant inspiration in the pod journey, Professor Carrie Ann Yokota of the University of Colorado, Denver. And as ever, she's here to get the party started. Great. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. And we're so glad that you're with us on the podcast, AJ. So welcome. I was hoping that we could start things off by asking you to share a bit about your intellectual trajectory, your biography, and uh, let us know how you started uh, on your journey as a historian. So that's a great question. Um, I actually took a very circuitous route into getting into history. So I, the first field I actually had a foray into was technology. Coming out of high school, I got a degree in uh, computer networking and security because I was very passionate about that at the time. And my father, he was, he was very tech savvy as well. And he told me from a young age how to use computers and build them from scratch and all those things in the 90s. And I found it very boring, <laughs> just in the state at least. Like I started working in IT and I found it boring. So the first thing I did was I joined the Marine Corps afterwards. I was like, it was the most exciting thing I think of was the Marine Corps. And I started working with explosives as a common engineer in the Marines. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But uh, while I was in the Marine Corps, I got injured. And once I was injured, I was medically retired out. And as I was going through the process of retiring from the military, I uh, attended a program for educational purposes for the VA of what I want to get passionate about, what I want to do a career in. And one of the things that came up was like, okay, well, guys asked, is like, well, what are you really interested in? What is something that you love? And I've always loved history. I've always loved it. From when I was a little kid, I've always enjoyed reading books, reading history books, really understanding them. And I started looking into it, say, what are the jobs that I can do as an historian? And I saw, uh, I was really interested at the time working with or federal government organizations like Smithsonian or possibly CMH where I work now and really working in the public facing sector of history. And I saw that at the very minimum I needed a graduate degree for, so I told the VA reps, like, this is what I really want to do. And I began that process of uh, once at UMD, going through undergrad, graduate school, now at GW, finished my PhD of going along being a historian. And it's been a journey for me. I've absolutely loved it. I've been able to get a job just like I wanted the public facing history sector with the U.S. Army Center of Military History. And I'm able to work once again, in the military realm with the federal government, 
in the D.C. area where my family is. And I absolutely love, I mean, every single day, I, my job is to read, research, and make Army history. So as a military historian, it's absolutely great. Sure. It's been absolutely great for me to be able to do something that I've always thought of as a sort of a hobby, something that I've always been interested in, something I've always just, like I would have done for free. And now I get paid to do it on the daily. It's one of those things. It's That's absolutely great. amazing. That's and so I will great. say, one side that is working as a federal government historian is that through this interview, all the opinions, uh, endorsements that I make, they're 100% my own. They're in no way a reflection of the U.S. Army Civil history, the Department of Defense, or the federal government. They're purely the opinions of Anthony Cade as I'm presenting here as an academic historian today. And I would need to make that clear. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think your um, biography or how you got your story about how you got into this field might inspire other people out there. There, Who knows? There might be some IT people who are aspiring <laughs> historians that will listen to your podcast and then take uh, the direction you did. So I think that's very great. It's great to, to learn about how you got interested in this topic, which you um, presented to us in your lecture. Um, just as a follow-up, I was wondering if um, you could tell us a bit about how the global figures into your research. As you know, that's our theme for this season. Um, we're really excited to have a bunch of scholars like yourselves, like yourself, who are um, really taking global perspectives um, into consideration as they're um, building their research projects. So we're curious to know how um, it's figured into your work. So that's a great question there. I would say the global is a big part of my research, as you know, after listening to my lecture, uh, for the topic that I examined of the Louisiana Native Guards and Louisiana itself, they're a very transnational group of regiments. And Louisiana itself is just a transnational place. I mean, from its inception throughout the entire time it's been part of America, it's been a very global central state, much more so than I think any other, maybe aside from New York, because of how it was formed, the populace there, everything that has occurred, the culture of it itself. And you cannot understand regiments like the Louisiana Native Guards without looking at them from a global perspective. Even the sources that I have to examine to look at these regiments are global sources. There's no way to look at them purely from Louisiana. You have to look at them from the Caribbean. You have to look at them from the European perspective. You even have to look at them from the West African perspective. It's the only way to look at these regiments. It's the only way to really understand their significance to African American history and the Southern history. So trying to look at it from a purely American-centric point of view, you miss about 80% of the story, honestly. And so global, I would, as you know from listening to lecture, it's a huge part of everything that you have to do to understand these. And I would say even when you look at the Civil War, uh, the historiography is slowly shifting away from this sort of paradigm of North versus South, and more stories are starting to accept the fact that the Civil War itself was a global war. It was much more than just an American war between two sides. I mean, this war would have decided so much for the Northern Hemisphere, for the world itself as it did. And you see that from the very beginning. You see that in the writings. You understand from the William Stewart, Secretary of State, that everyone understands as this war is occurring this is much more than the North versus the South. So it's a very, very global war as it's occurring. And um, yeah, it's a big part of it. 
Yeah, and if I'm picking up on that, one of the things that I took away from your talk was this uh, distinction between the global perspective of the Civil War that's usually uh, presented in sort of like high school history classrooms, which to the extent the global intercedes, it's usually almost exclusively through this high diplomacy uh, place about whether or not England or France, the British Empire or the French Empire are going to intervene <laughs> on the side of the Confederacy or on the side of the Union or take no position at all. Um, I think there are a couple of other European powers in there that occasionally get referenced, but it's usually presented as this as the, as this uh, choice that European powers are in the position of making. And that's, of course, very Richmond-centric, very Washington-centric mm. kind of story. You bring us down to Louisiana, which has this whole different relationship with the global inheritance that it has from the Code Noir, um, with Spanish and French influence, uh, the influence of their law, their legal systems. So you have, by the time you get to the Civil War, you have this these remarkable individual case studies and biographies and uh, acts of defiance and and extraordinary courage in the face of serious racial violence. That can't be disconnected from the transnational Kennet. No, it can't. And so to answer your first question, yes, there's a lot more to be said on the Civil War. It's, it's actually interesting. When I first decided to be a, to study the Civil War for my dissertation, a co-worker of mine was like, isn't enough been written on the Civil War? Isn't there enough Civil War stories? We really need another one. And I explained to him that there's still so much more to be said. I mean, when you're looking at the regiments like the Louisiana Native Guards, when I speak about them to other Civil War historians, and I try to tell them that these are the first federally mustered regiments of African-American soldiers inside the Union Army, there are Civil War historians who don't even know who these regiments are. Their knee-jerk reaction is either the Southern Regiments raised in South Carolina on the Sea Islands by David Hunter, or the 54th Regiment raised in Massachusetts. Those are the two that everyone sort of thinks of first for African-American soldiers. But the Native Guards were the first ones, to, like, they were constituted after Hunters, but Hunters were never mustered in the Federal Service, and the 54th was after the Native Guards. By the time the 54th was mustered in, Native Guards are actually already seen combat. So you have these regiments that people know so little about for the regiments themselves. So that's why you see the individual stories when it comes to the soldiers, it's how they're constituted from the laws that put them in place. All of this is unknown as well because so few people have really examined these regiments and what they've meant to this entire nation. And I would say there's much more to be said for other places. When you start looking at the local and you start looking at very specific places, throughout the entire nation, you start finding these very centric stories that no one knows. Because like you said, when they, you're always looking at this very Richmond-centered East Coast, these same places everyone sort of writes on over and over and over again, you lose the stories that are just so much more interesting and so untold because there's so many more sources. And that's what I found even look at um, regiments like the Native Guards. I understand that their sources are very limited. You have to, it takes a lot of work to uh, write on some regiments like these. I will tell you that it takes quite a bit of working looking at sources from, I mean, quite literally all around the world to understand them. So it, I understand that why it's hard for people to do it, but there's so much to be said for them. 
we were chatting before the recording started. I thought for sure, listening to your talk, I was like, he's got to be from New Orleans. <laughs> he's got to be, you know, he's got to have some kind of Louisiana story. So we were chatting about that. You said, no, man, I'm from Washington, D.C. <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, you know, we're part of the, what, what drew you to this is the local too, the local sort of texture of the place. I would say what drew me to the Native Guards were the regiments themselves. So I started to look into the regiments in passing, to be quite honest. It was just, I read a Hollingsworth book titled Louisiana Native Guards. And I just looked into it. It was a very brief book. And I thought it was an interesting story. And I would, as I stated to you earlier, I'm very passionate about African-American history itself. And when I started really reading more and more into Native Guards, I realized there was so little said about them. Uh, besides Hollingsworth book, the only other book that sort of tries to write solely on the Native Guards was by a soldier who actually fought inside the Native Guards, Joseph Wilson. And his book came out in 1895. So between those two books, no one has really written on the Native Guards. And they're, they're sort of forgotten about regiments of the Civil War, unfortunately. And because of my passion of wanting to bring African-American history to the forefront of historiography a lot more, finding a regiment that has had so little said about them when they're just so interesting. It's just, it, it seemed totally unfair to me. I mean, it, it is very infuriating when you really look at it because they're just an amazing set of regiments. As you say, when you look at the men themselves, these are amazing individuals. I mean, you're talking people who are able to amass great deals of wealth, not just for the South, but for the nation itself. You're talking doctors, merchants, lawyers. They are owning enterprise. They are moving land. They are being respected by the populace because they have no choice because money always, just like today, money runs the world. You have someone who's extremely wealthy, you're going to respect them whether they're black or not to a certain degree, even during the time of the 19th century. These are wealthy men. They are owning land. As I said, some of them even own the slave people. They own large plantations. They're going to France. They're getting educated in universities around the world. They're coming back to Louisiana. They're bringing their sophistication and education with them. This is why they're able to work as officers inside the Native Guards, because these are highly educated people. They are better quality than some of the other officers that you have that are just sort of being thrown into their positions purely because they're white. You're talking highly educated. Some of them have PhDs. Some have doctorates with medical degrees as well. These are great, great men. They're just, and just seeing that their stories are just so ignored. It's just, uh it's heartbreaking. It, it really is. It yeah. really, really is. Because they are just such an amazing group of, like every single time I look at one of these guys' stories and I start really diving into just their backgrounds, just, uh, I, even right now working on the paper for one of the soldiers who, I think I may have mentioned it inside the lecture where he stabbed his former master. I've just been looking to that one alone and his biography I had to turn to his own paper just because it's just so amazing and everything that he went through. But it's just, it's just, I can keep going on for each and every one of them. They're, they're a great set of guys. They're, I absolutely are. Well, I think you're going to do a lot in 
in trying to get their stories out there to the public. Um, you know, I think that's great. Can you share with us um, the archival record that um, is left of of these wonderful and amazing group of this amazing group of people? What what's out there? What were you using and referring to, and what can other people see? What where and where are the records? So, as I stated earlier, their records are few and far in between all around the world. Unfortunately, because of their placement further down Louisiana and also, of course, because they're such a large group of African Americans, their records weren't as, weren't as well preserved as others. Uh, when I look at, for an example, General Benjamin, uh, General Benjamin Butler, when he came down there to New Orleans, I can show you his entire letter book from day to day of when he's down in Louisiana, even after he leaves. I can tell you how his wife felt, how his friends felt. I can tell you about as he's writing to every single merchant, as he gives every single order. I can literally go day by day on Butler's life in New Orleans. If you ask him for someone like Andre Kalu, it's very, very little. I can find interspersed letters in Louisiana State Archives at LSU in Baton Rouge. I found some on Tulane. I've found a very few sources directly from the soldiers in the uh, Digital Louisiana Project as well. But uh, what I found that I've had to use more than anything else is newspapers because the press is writing so much about these regiments and so much about the men, and they're actually even reprinting some of their records. Uh, as I mentioned in my lecture, mm -hmm. uh, Charles Rudinez, he starts his newspaper, The L Union. And the L Union is purely in French, and you have these officers writing to the paper itself. But as they're writing and republishing their speeches, and that's where you're really able to preserve their history, because I have entire speeches by officers inside the L Union. I have the letters that they're sending to fans that's being reprinted inside the L Union. And that's why I'm finding them more than anywhere else. And then you have other newspapers that's also reprinting them. So throughout the Caribbean, because you're loving them. I'm finding papers from Haiti. I'm finding papers from Bermudas, from the Bahamas, where they're talking about the Native Guards. When I look over in France and England, they're talking about the Native Guards as well because they're shocked because they're having case situations where their citizens are interacting with the Native Guards, with these African-American soldiers in Louisiana. And some of them have actually been shot instead for interacting with them the wrong way. So these papers, these stories that have been reprinted in France, in England, talking about, hey, this is what's happened to our citizens in Louisiana, in America, during this civil war that's occurring right now. Like, what is the government going to do about it? What are we going to do about our people? So I'm finding these all over the world, but I cannot find just that one repository. And, you know, some stories, they say, I'm able to write my dissertation with this one great set of papers from this one repository, and I can just go there and scan all their documents, call it a day. For me, I've had to look everywhere. But because of it, I've been able to tell an amazing story about these guys. And I've, I think because of that, I've been able to find a lot more interesting stories versus just telling it from one single perspective, like a lot of other people may have. Well, I, I am super grateful that you're, you're putting in the effort because you had mentioned just how captivating some of these biographies are to encounter the life stories and, and the history of what they did. You brought up John Andrew, right, who's the enslaved man who declared his own independence, if you will. Oh, much more than that. John Andrew left Archibald Montgomery when the Union Army arrived. 
And Archibald tried to re-enslave him, when he, especially when he went to join the Native Guards. But he was made quite clear to him that because he was a British citizen, he was not allowed to own enslaved people because that was how Butler was interpreting the law at the time period. So when he tried to push the government to give him back his enslaved person, he was told quite simply, no, this is months before Lincoln was prepared to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. John Andrew was already freed himself. And then he was told by the military, well, you can't re-enslave him. He is already a free man because you were never supposed to enslave him to begin with because you're a British citizen. So he was able to retain his freedom. When the Native Guards were constituted in the Union Army, John Andrew was able to legally join because even when he was first, when Butler first started the regiments, he made the order quite clear. If you were still supposed to be enslaved, you cannot join these regiments. But John Andrew, because he was supposed to have never been enslaved, he was allowed to join. He publicly joined. That's why even when this investigation occurred, he was still allowed to continue serving. And he served uh, up until his promoted to corporal in 1863. So he served quite clear through to the end of the war from what I can find it for him. You know, another of these figures that you introduce us to in the course of your talk, this gentleman, Jordan Noble, sounds so fascinating. Oh, Jordan. Because, yeah. yeah because, so I, I don't know if you have anything else to share about what kind of a person he was, but my understanding is that he had served in the Battle of New Orleans in 1815, right? So he's yep. one of these people that Andrew Jackson comes along and says, oh, you'll have 160 acres and you'll have $124 in cash if you show up and do service to the United States of America under my leadership. And then he never ends up upholding that promise. Well, see, Jordan Noble doesn't just show up. Jordan Noble remained a figure in New Orleans. So even between the Battle of New Orleans up until the Civil War itself, he was always a figure within the city because all the men who served at the Battle of New Orleans, they sort of held this place of reverence within inside the city and within inside social circles of African-Americans within the country. And when it came down to it, he was one of the few that was still alive when the Civil War began. So that's why the people, the populace knew him. And he was actually referred to quite often as Old Jordan. Like he was, and it was stated as a point of reverence. It wasn't as something to insult him by any means. Like even the white populace, if they saw Old Jordan, they would recognize Old Jordan walking down the streets of New Orleans. Like he was a figure. So it was natural for Jordan to come to a place of leadership to be one of the ones to call for African-Americans to join the Home Guard units because he was already acting as a leader among the African-American community. So it wasn't more so he showed up. He was always there, and he was always speaking with African-Americans throughout the 19th century. He just didn't have time in the lecture that I was giving, because I only had 30, 40 minutes. I had, as you know, quite a few stories to go over to sort of show the transnational aspect. But even old Jordan, he's a very, very fascinating individual. Um, and he served inside the Home Guard units himself. I mean, he served as an officer. He's able to lead them in parade, even as an old man. He doesn't go on to serve in the Native Guards and Union Army because I think he was too old to see actual combat. I think at a certain point he knew he's good for parade duty, but if they had actually had to put him in combat with a musket and people started shooting at him, he would not have been able to lead as well. But Jordan was always, even then, still a political figure for quite a bit of a time inside the African-American community as a cultural leader more than anything else. And he was a great man for them as well. And even his choice when he made that decision to join the Home Guards units, I like to think that 
He knew what he was doing more than anything else. He can sort of see the writing on the wall. I've mentioned this in my lecture, but they knew what was coming. When you look at the history of Louisiana, just a year prior in 1860, especially after the Dred Scott decision, one thing else, so 1857 to 1860, you start seeing this relegation of laws and of rights for free African-Americans. So by the time of the Civil War, when Jordan Noble's calling for them to join this Home Guard unit, I, there's no writings of this, but I can see this from the writings of other people who decided to join. They knew that if they didn't do this, what it would mean for them. It would mean that they would be seen as the other, they would be seen as traitors, they would be seen as disloyal. And even whites that were seen as disloyal in Louisiana were being lynched. I mean, there's cases of white men being tarred and feathered for being seen as disloyal. There's cases of white men being lynched. There's cases of white men actually being killed. There's others who've been just simply run out of town. Even women are being run out of town and they're being thought of as being disloyal. Mm -hmm. So of course, if they're attacking the white populace, if you're a black person, they're coming for you as well. There were cases of black people who are attacked and lynched as well. So their choices to join, definitely when y'all see some of the writings or a few letters here and there, they say, hey, if I didn't do this, they could have took everything I had. They could have possibly re-enslaved me. They could have possibly taken away my family. They could have possibly killed me. I believe their stories because of the fact of the sources show these things happened to even the white populace. So, Right. Well, it's apparent from your lecture that you have so many stories and that you were really trying hard to, to think about how you're going to fit everything yeah. into the lecture. So that's why we were looking forward to this Q&A session. Um, and I was going to give you the chance to tell us a bit about the story of women in the African-American community in New Orleans and, and maybe fill us in a bit about their role. You've mentioned it a couple times in this session, but I'm sure you have more that you could say. Yep. So the women of the African-American community, they were almost just as involved as the men were inside the Civil War. And I mean this from the very beginning. So when Jordan Noble called for the African-American men to join the Home Guard unit, the women were at that meeting as well. And the women resolved to aid the Confederacy, the Home Guards at the exact same time. So the day before the men were authorized to join by uh, Thomas Moore, the women had already been authorized by Mayor Monroe to start working with the Home Guard militia as well. And they're working as laundresses, they're working inside the academies, they're actually sewing uniforms. So the women already, and the mayor is praising them for their loyalty. The day before, the men are even authorized to start forming their home guard unit. So technically, when you really look at it, the women were the first to start aiding and the first to start trying to help the African-American community before the men were, per the order of who was authorized before who was. And as the women are there, they're involved from the very beginning when the home guards are stood up. The women are the ones who are helping to sew the uniforms because the New Orleans Home Guards, they never issue uniforms to them. They don't issue equipment. They don't issue weapons. So the women are the ones who are actually weaving their uniforms together. They're actually the ones weaving their flags. They're the ones that's doing all the work to get their men in the proper place so that when they have this sort of test of loyalty, if you're really going to go and get this equipment that you need all on your own, on your own expense, the women are the ones who's putting in the work to actually get it done. As always. <laughs> As always. You know, they're the women. Still. They're always. Always. And when you look at the time when the Union Army arrives, the women are right there once again. 
you're seeing the women, even before the men are authorized, once again, by General Butler to serve in the Native Guards, the women were already serving as laundresses inside the encampments. The women are, once again, already there. They're the ones doing the work, proving that the value of African-American labor, much more than the men were, because the men, they're still able to work as teamsters and laborers, but the women are the ones inside the encampments day to day surrounding the soldiers, showing their usefulness every single time. When you're throughout the entirety of the war, you're seeing the women involved inside the academies all throughout Louisiana. Now, at the same time, I must admit that this does become a detriment to them to a certain degree. At a certain point, there are quite a few cases of women actually being raped and assaulted by even white Union officers and white Union soldiers. And this culminated inside one of the bigger... I would say detriments to the reputation of the Native Guards when the winter of 1863, right because January 1864, there's actually a revolt at Fort Jackson where the 4th Regiment of the Corps d'Afrique, which becomes one of the, after the 4th Regiment of Native Guards as we designate the 4th Corps d'Afrique, their soldiers, they're, they're attacking their white Union officers for that very reason because they're going after some of these officers who were raping some of the black laundresses. So you see the men are now having to protect their women and they're making it very clear to them that you're no longer going to rape and assault these women. You're not going to go day by day just going down to their camps and assaulting them freely. We're going to stand up for our women as well. So the men know that they need to look out for their women. They're doing everything they can to look out for them. They're doing everything they can to protect them. They commit an open revolt and they threaten to kill quite a few of them if it happens again. So the men are looking out for their women during this time period at the same time. But I would definitely say that women are involved every single step of the way in every single major battle. When you look at battles such as Port Hudson, which is one of the larger battles that the Native Guard involves in, the women are right there as well. When you look at some of the smaller battles, when they're just pushing back against roving bands of guerrillas and Lafouche Parish, the women are still there as well. And I like I see it's one of those things I couldn't talk about it much in the lecture, but the women are right there standing toe to toe with their men, doing everything they can to sort of create this new place for African-Americans inside Louisiana mm -hmm. during and after the Civil War. And you see the same thread even going into Reconstruction as well, where you see the women not only standing alongside, but even pushing their men and pushing their own rights to make sure that African-Americans have this secured place inside Louisiana going to presidential and congressional Reconstruction. I mean, granted, men are the one of the ones that are seen the most because they can actually run for office, and you see some of them actually successfully getting office because of their military service. But the women are the ones that are right there pushing them to do these. They're the ones organizing these community events. Women are the ones in attendance in these community events, making sure that their children are there, making sure their husbands are there, rousing up a crowd and everything else, pushing out the names, going out to communities, making sure everyone knows what needs to be done. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I think I may have went on a tangent. No, so. no, no. I think I mean, it's <laughs> worth talking about. It's it could have been a lecture in and of itself. All on his own. Yeah, it, it truly could be. Like quite honestly. Yeah. Yeah, and I wanted to ask, uh, just picking up on that, the because before you were talking about your passion for African American history, your interest in building out that literature and the historiography, but this is also a piece of like military history of sorts, right? So it's African-American military history. And you just talk about how interwoven and integral the role of black women 
is to that story too. And yet I'm assuming, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong. I hope I am wrong, but I don't think I am sadly, um, that those women don't really show up in those sources, in those regimental sources, the records of who was mustered into the Union Army and such. And so you must have to, I guess, diversify if you're bringing them in, right? Yes. You have to look at a broader portfolio of sources. And how have you managed that in your work? Well, so it's one of two things. One, they actually do show up in the regimental records in weird ways. So when you look at these sources of let's say just an officer, I'll use Butler once again, when Butler's discussing just the laundresses of, or even the task that would typically be assigned to women, he may not be saying the woman's name, but as he's going through, you understand that these are the women that are getting the roles done. These are the women that are getting these tasks done for the Union Army. So you understand that without the African-American women doing these tasks, this would not get done. And then as you stated, diversifying sources is the only other way that I can really sort of understand what women are doing for the army itself. And that goes back to what I stated earlier about looking at sources all around the world. Looking at newspapers, I found to be the biggest resource for me, once again, because in newspapers, they're not as sexist in terms of focusing solely on men. You do see the women show up inside newspaper accounts. You do see the women show up inside even the letters themselves that are being published. But you have to read against the grain some of the more traditional sources, but they are still there. They are by no, they're not as at the forefront, but they're not entirely ignored as well. So they are still there. And it's just really trying to understand and knowing what you're looking for. You can still find them in all those cases. Everybody has their own reasons for signing up, I guess, right? Um, How much of that, when you encounter these people, does it feel like the reasons are ideological? I mean, I feel like it's easy to take this step away from a thousand feet perspective and say, oh, well, clearly they wanted to serve the union. But that seems really presumptuous, I think, on our part. And and when you get into their materials and their stories, um, to what extent is that part of the motivation or not? So... When you ask what are their motivations ideologically, I would say it it all depends on when you're asking. If you're asking in terms of the time period of 1861, when they're joining the Home Guard units, I find very little ideological motivations in terms of joining. It seems more so their motivations at that point was self-preservation above all else. They want to preserve themselves, their families, their land, their place inside the city, their place inside the state. So they understood that to not join, it was only bad consequences. So when you get into 1862, when Butler comes, that's when you start seeing the ideologicals. That's when it's more of a choice. Because now it's no longer, if I don't join, X will happen. Now it's if I don't join, well, nothing happens. I can just keep going about my day. If I want to be a barber, I can keep being a barber. Uh, Charles Udinez, he's like, hey, I want to keep being a doctor and start a newspaper. I can keep being a doctor and start a newspaper with my brother and my friends. Like, no one says you must join, it's going to look bad for you. So that's when you can start seeing the ideological motivations sort of sprout up at that time period. And when I see them, you see it's much more than just simply, I want to serve the union. It's, I want to serve the union for this reason. And the reason I bring up Rudinez once again is because of the L Union. You see 
when the officers are writing into this paper and they're writing to others to join these regiments, they're writing to them, letting them know that to serve inside the Union Army is to help and uplift all African-Americans, mm-hmm. not just the formerly enslaved, not just the ones that are already free. We're going to help secure the freedom and the rights for all of us. This will better all of us. If we fight, even if we die in combat, and this is literally what some of these guys are saying, like, yes, we're going to die in combat, but it will help all of us. It will help your children. One of the soldiers even states that the only reason I served was purely so that my son has a better place in life Mm -hmm. after I die. That's the only reason he wanted to serve. There was no other. So that's when you start seeing these ideological reasons really spring up when it's like, okay, now what do I want to do? What do I see my service as through joining the Union Army versus I must join the Home Guards purely if I want to be able to keep living here? Well, if I can intervene, I, I just think that what your comment um, highlights and what your work actually highlights is the fact that you know self-preservation, I think, is is a human impulse, but there's a heavier burden to bear on the shoulders of people of color when it comes to serving in the military um, and serving a country that does not automatically grant you equal rights, despite what mm-hmm. the um, or documents of the country say. So I kept thinking about the Japanese-American volunteers who were um, whose families were in, were in World War II, whose families are in camp and they volunteer, not just for themselves, not just because they believe in democracy, which they do, but because they are proving something. So mm-hmm. it shows you that, you know, a century later, right, we're still yes, thinking still about in, in a different community of color, but that is a commonality that goes through time and also um, is shared by many different groups, right? So, and and that's what um, kept, that's what really struck me as a powerful message that transcends just this particular um, context, but it talks about um, U.S. history writ large. It, it connects communities of color, that you're not just fighting for individual freedoms, but you're fighting for your people or on behalf of your I would say... I would say this even seen today, there was a chapter for Edited Volume I recently did where I made a comment about how even today, like in the 21st century, you're seeing uh, LGBTQ people where mm-hmm. they're choosing to serve in the military, even today for that very same reason of this sense of belonging, a sense of proof that we belong here, we're just like everyone else, so we deserve the same rights as everyone else. And so it's not just a century later, it's Today is it's today. And a half Absolutely. Later. It's one of those things Absolutely. that is an unfortunate part of American history, but it's still an unfortunate part of American history today. We're Absolutely. seeing people still having to find, use the military service as a route to prove that they are Americans, that they deserve the same rights as any other American. They deserve to be able to be treated like any other American. And you still have to do this day to day and commit the same fight in the same country. And sometimes in the same cities, it's right. ridiculous, no. but unfortunately, it's part of what occurs. Absolutely. And, I, you know, if I could follow up, one of the questions I wanted to ask you um, was, you know, you talk uh, very powerfully about your commitment <coughs> to African-American studies or African-American history. And I'm really interested in intersections between scholarly fields, 
And um, so you're obviously also working on military history. So you have a special insight, I would assume, because you did yourself serve in the military. So I was wondering if you could speak a bit and, you know, you're touching on that when you're talking about, you know, the different people who are serving today as we speak, you know, and what they're trying to prove or how their, you know, service has greater meaning, meaning a, a outside of just the individual, but, um, how do you think that your service gave you different insights into the historical period or the historical, um, issues that you're delving into in your dissertation and in this book and in this lecture, what, what does that give you or, or, you know, can you talk to us about that? Because many of us, in the historical profession, you know, we, we talk about objectivity, but I also think that um, we all bring our individual experiences and backgrounds and all of that to the questions we ask and the insights we give and how we read the historical records in the archives. So I'd be so curious to hear your thoughts on, on your personal story. That is a great question, Nikari. And I would say my military service gives me the ability to understand what they're going through and to, more than anything else, I would say, recognize what they're going through, even when others aren't. I mean, you look at some of the writings of these soldiers themselves, and as they're speaking about their families, like, I, I know what it means to be separated from my family. I know what it means to be concerned about what's going on with my wife and child as I'm off at combat, I mean, literally, that was my first deployment. I I deployed, just a quick background, my first son was born two days before I left for my first appointment. So quite literally, I saw him born on May 23rd. I was at the hospital up until May 24th. Then May 25th, I was on a C-130 headed to Afghanistan. Like That was the order of events for my first child's birth. So I understand what it means to leave your wife and child behind and that longing, that fear, the, when these guys are talking about their letters of being concerned about their families, I'm like, I identify with that. I know what you mean. I know what that feels. I So it's much more than just simply saying, oh, he's worried about his wife. Like, no, it's he's saying a lot more that you don't understand when he's saving this. The fact that he's even putting in writing to others, to a friend inside the area. I know why he's doing it. I get it. I feel you there. When they're talking about how this war makes them feel afterwards, how they look back at their service, how they feel like their service gives them this sort of right to push for certain rights so that they can feel. I know what that feeling is too. I know what it means to say, okay, look, I served inside this army. So because I did this, what does now the government owe me back? I did my part. I served you. I helped you in your war. I did everything I could. I was even injured in battle for you. Now I'm asking you to give me the right just to ride on an integrated star car. I'm asking you to give me the right to vote. I'm asking you to give me the right to do X. And when they're going to keep these government officials and doing this, I understand what they're feeling when they're doing that as well. Like I understand the passion that's behind their voice that others may not be able to recognize because they're looking at it as an objective view or they've never had to experience that themselves. But I've had to experience that. I know what they're going through. So being able to identify the emotion and identify the history and identify what it is you're really going through has helped me, one, to look at their sources better, but two, has also given me the ability, I'd say one or the other, to know where to look. 
because there are certain sources that I've looked at that until others haven't examined because of the fact they didn't think to themselves, this is where you would put it or this is where you would say it. But for someone who's lived through that, I can think, well, what would I have done? If I was in a situation, where would I have put this? Or where would I have sent this? Who would I have sent this to? And then once I think of that, it's like, oh, now I'm able to find something someone else may not have even thought to look here because of the fact they didn't think that that would be a factor to them. But to me, it's like, it's natural. It's like, this is exactly what I would have done. So I understand that's what you would have done here. And it's able for me to discover it. So I would say military service, my military service definitely gave me a lens. And even when it comes to my dissertation itself, as you said, it's a very intersectional thing. I, I like to actually think of myself as a both a military historian and an African-American historian. So it's one of those things when people ask me, I sort of say both. <coughs> and I'm also a transnational historian. It, it becomes a long list if I ever try to say it all together. So I try to limit myself whenever I'm giving a very specific talk. But I definitely dive into all those realms of African-American history, transnational history, military history, 19th century history, long 19th century history that when I, in the regiments of Native Guards, are a perfect example of that, but they're not the only things, example of regimes I look at, but they're a perfect example of that intersectionality of bringing together multiple facets of history. I mean, even the social history of this city itself, they are all just fascinating aspects. Wow. And I, you know, as you were just wrapping up that last point, I'm thinking about the origin story for this podcast, which, you know, came from out of the events of 2020. And I think, you know, for Carrie and I, a little bit of like a, an attempt to do things a little bit differently in response. And um, it's pretty obvious your work is going to be a part of that too. So I want to thank you for sharing some of it with us today and helping us share a bit more of the OAH community with with the rest of the world. Because I think one of the takeaways we had from 2020 was that we just need to be more part of a conversation than we had been. And mm -hmm. I'm so glad to hear that you're going to be part of that conversation too. So AJ, mm, thanks, thank, you. Yeah, thank so, you so much for thanks, sharing this, this really remarkable great. research. I had never heard about the Sons of Chalmette before. I think to the extent <laughs> that most people have much of a memory about African-American servicemen in the Civil War. It's mostly bound up in glory. And, yep, and you know, which is, which is, a, which is a, a fantastic film, you know, and, and it's great, but um, it is uh, not nearly the kind of complexity you get from just one talk with you. Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. I so appreciate much. that, Chris. Thanks, Gary. It, Thanks. It's been great. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening, and please join us again next time when we welcome Professor Kenneth Jenkins to the pod, who's going to be taking a comparative look at the world travels of Cedric Belfrage and Langston Hughes in the 1930s. It's a great talk. It's called Anti-Capitalist Globetrotters. Please join us. We'll catch you then.